that will be framed um, by um, some uh, thoughts from Hannah um, on the link between gender and um, militarism and war. Um, after the break, um, David Brockway and colleagues from the Great Initiative uh, will be running an interactive workshop session um, um, where they will demonstrate the work they are doing in schools in the UK to challenge prevailing um, gender norms. Um, and yeah, interactive, so we hope that you can all participate. And then I will talk a little bit about how similar work is um, very helpful for people in a conflict prevention project in other Um We have some publications here, so when you're leaving, please take some. Um, there's also a um, small advertisement for a play um, that's currently run in London um, that uh, quite nicely portrays the link between notions of masculinity and militarism. Okay, with that, I'll hand over to my colleague Hannah and then to Julia. Thanks. Thank you, Lily. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Um, so before I start the presentation on what does gender have to do with war and militarism, um, just to wake everybody up a bit, so I know it's that post-lunch, everyone falls asleep, cliche kind of thing, um, I'm just going to do a quick exercise with you. So um, I am going to put uh, three different statements up on the PowerPoint uh, and read them out for you. And I want people to stand up if you agree with the statement and stay seated if you don't. Uh, some of these are de deliberately provocative and not necessarily things that we're endorsing, but it's just to get you to start thinking about what some of the links are between gender and militarism and violence. So the first statement, men are naturally prone to violence, while women make natural peacemakers. So stand up if you agree, stay seated if you don't. No one agrees? Okay. <laughs> Okay, and put your hand up if you're not sure or you have no idea. Yeah, so we're going to go on to discuss all of these questions and all of these issues. Um, next one, getting more women into the armed forces is an important part of the fight for gender equality. Stand up if you agree. A few more people. Yeah. Okay, and build peaceful societies, changing our ideas about gender roles is necessary. <laughs> wow, okay. I mean, I don't even know if you guys need to be here. Because <laughs> I'm about to explain to you why I think that's the case. <laughs> Brilliant, okay, thank you. Sit down. Great, so um, before we launch into this, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what is gender or what do we mean by gender. And just to be clear, this is kind of used in lots of different ways in everyday speech and in <laughs> academia and, and activism and so on. Uh, so this is a definition of gender from the United Nations, one that's quite um, commonly used, which says that gender refers to the social attributes and opportunities associated with being male and female, and the relationships between women and men and girls and boys, as well as the relations between men and those between women. So I think the key thing to take away from this is uh, the, the difference between gender and biological sex. So rather than talking about anatomy, we're talking about social constructs uh, which determine what behaviour is seen as appropriate or valuable for men or women in different cultures. And obviously that being something that varies between cultures, something that changes over time um, and is, 
is kind of uh, malleable rather than something that's innate. Uh, and there's a video that I wanted to show you on this. I haven't managed to get the um, audio working on here, but I'm going to try this slightly at the amateur version of holding the mic up to the computer <laughs> and seeing if that works. So if you can't hear this, just shout at me and we can stop and move on. Can you hear that? A bit better. Moments of our lives that boys will be boys and girls will be girls. News stories about gender are everywhere today. Should people declare men at birth be allowed to women only colleges? Can I use whatever washroom I fancy? Can women become men? According to American philosopher Judith Butler, these conversations miss an important point. Gender is a lot messier than we'd like to think. Gender is a sort of script that society expects us to act out. Women have long hair, they wear bikinis, they walk and talk, they even sit like women. And men are expected to be manly. They walk and talk like men. They don't iron and they certainly don't get caught up with anything girl. Even a hundred years ago, it was perfectly normal for women to have body hair and boys to wear pink dresses. Norms have changed with society. Society assumes that girls act like girls because of hormones or because their brains are just different. But these gender roles are, according to Butler, determined by society. From the moment the doctor declares it's a girl, we're expected and compelled to act like our gender. Girls are supposed to play with purple ponies and dolls, while boys get spaceships and G.I. Joes. Gender is the narrative we ascribe to anatomy. And there's plenty of people who don't fit into either category. <laughs> Our ideal man and woman are fictions, and they're constantly breaking down. We know of women who prefer swords and sports, and men who prefer dresses and poetry. For Butler, gender is performative. We act it out every day in our mannerisms, our speech, and our thoughts. And when we act it out, we're not just putting on a show. We're consolidating and actively constructing these gender identities. Gender is not just an identity, it's a ritual. If gender is performative, then perhaps our best course of action is to refuse to perform. Perform differently, or even laugh at it. Okay, I'm going to stop it there because it goes on a bit, but hopefully you get the idea. I put it there mostly for entertainment value, just because I think it's quite funny. It's got David Bowie in it, who makes me nostalgic for early 90s computer games. Um, so, um, going back to the PowerPoint. Here we go. Okay, um, so because we're talking about the relationship between gender and militarism, I also just wanted to make clear what it is that we're talking about when we talk about militarism. Um, so here are some dictionary definitions um, that we found. So maybe take a second just to have a look at those. And I think um, for me, the kind of the key thing to take away from these definitions is that um, when we talk about militarism, we're talking about the role of military institutions within societies, within making policies um, in, amongst our governments. But we're also talking about culture, and we're talking about ideals and ideologies. Um, and here are, here are some examples of, um, of militarism within, um, within different cultures. So we're talking about both kinds of military interventions. So this one down here is a news story from last year around the US launching airstrikes on Syria. Um, this 
one illustrates expenditure on um, on the military. So militarism is also about kind of maintaining constant preparedness for war, even when we're not actually engaged in one. Uh, on the right hand, we have uh, the militarisation of culture. So examples of things where we're really glorifying war and glorifying soldiering within our culture. And then at, at the top there. Uh, this photo is from Ferguson, Missouri, and is an example of the militarisation of policing. So militarism kind of coming into our domestic security arrangements as well as our foreign policy. Um, so I wanted to talk a bit about why, kind of, why do people think about gender when, we, when we're talking about peace activism? Because um, for, for at least 100 years, and probably longer in fact, women activists within peace movements have chosen to organise as women through women-led or women-only groups. And these are just a few examples. So you've got Liberia here, you've got the Women in Black movement from Israel, and then um, this is the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which is an international movement that's been going for 100 years this year, in fact. Um, and so by choosing to organise as women, they, they're obviously trying to make some kind of statement that there's some kind of relationship between gender and war and peace. Um, so we're going to talk a bit in this session about you know, why would you choose to make that, that connection at all. This is a quote from uh, Benito Mussolini, not someone I'm holding up as a particular hero on gender issues or anything else for that matter. <laughs> but I think it's interesting because it kind of illustrates something, which is that throughout history people have tended to associate war uh, with men and masculinity and peace with women and femininity. Um, and so, obviously, in this quote, he's saying war is to man what maternity is to women, uh, which could be interpreted in various different ways. Perhaps he was saying that men are biologically prepared for war and fighting in the same way that women are biologically prepared to bear children. Or maybe he was saying that fighting in war is what makes a man a real man, uh, in the same sense that some might say uh, that mothering makes, makes uh, women real women. And um, as you'll see from this recruiting poster on the left, and this is from the Second World War from the UK, uh, the idea that enlisting in the armed forces is a way for men to prove their masculinity uh, has been used by military recruiters for quite a long time, uh, as has the idea that women are kind of helpless victims who need to be protected. So you can see this poster, it's appealing to men uh, to join up in the army through this idea of, and it's linking women and children here, and this is something that you hear really commonly, is women linked to children as kind of helpless victims who need to be protected. Um, on the other hand, uh, on the right hand side, we can see um, how politicians have come under pressure to demonstrate their masculinity, and uh, kind of waging war being hawkish or militaristic, or having military cr credentials is um, one way of being seen to do that, whereas associating them with femininity by calling them whips, for example, as uh, George Bush Senior there was called um, for a while, which was a big public image uh, problem for him, has been one way of really kind of damaging them, them publicly. And so we see how kind of ideas about masculinity play out to reinforce this militarisation uh, through both kind of um, recruitment into the military and the waging of war, but also in the making of policy as well. Uh, so this is an example of how, um, how women's peace activism has kind of responded to these ideas. And this is the first of several examples that I'm going to show you. Um, and so the first one is, um, 
these are from the 80s, actually, these, these images. Um, the one on the right is from the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. And on the left, this is Greenham Common, uh, the, um, the, the base in Newbury where um, US uh, missiles were stored in the UK. Uh, and so this is some of the kind of messaging um, which some women peace activists have come up, which kind of reinforces this idea of like men as violent and women as peaceful by using these sorts of slogans around like you know take the toys from the boys, uh, no more toys for the boys uh, there. So something that's maybe not quite so common anymore, but for a time was quite common. Um, can anybody see any kind of particular problems with this with this approach? Yeah. Men aren't going to want to support you because you're making them the enemy. Right, yeah, so if you, if you make men the enemy, that's not very helpful for getting them to support your cause. Yeah. It reinforces the biological determinant, like men are inherently more and violent than women, and actually what you want to do is dismantle those notions. Exactly. Can everyone hear that? And yeah. Okay, anyone else? No? Okay, yeah, I mean, I think you've got it there pretty much. So uh, here are a few problems with that kind of theory. Um, one of them is that uh, women have been very much involved in promoting militarism and, uh, and waging war throughout history. Um, so actually, I mean, to think of women as being inherently peaceful is clearly just completely inaccurate. Um, but as, as you also pointed out, um, it's, also, it's also kind of unhelpful, I guess, as women, if we see men as sort of naturally violent, it puts us potentially in this perpetual state of like trying to stop them fighting which is a bit patronising towards men, really, and doesn't sound like that much fun as a woman either. So, um, And then also, I think uh, many people would argue but that this kind of stereotype as women, women as like weak and kind of peace-loving and quite meek is actually part of what has, what has um, driven inequality and kept women oppressed. So we don't really necessarily want to be reinforcing all of those ideas. And then here's another set of problems, uh, or another set of issues with that theory, uh, which is that clearly there have been many, um, many men involved in peace activism as well. Um, you've got a few examples there, uh, many of which I'm sure you'll recognise. Um, so here is another way that feminists have responded to this kind of question of the relationship between, uh, between gender and war. Uh, and that's, between, uh, that's from... Uh, essentially kind of rejecting this idea of, um, of femininity as being to do with peace and being to do with weakness and so on by basically trying to show that women can do everything that a man can do um, and arguing for women's greater participation in militaries. Um, so obviously in many countries women have sought equal opportunities to join the armed forces. It's been a debate that's quite current in this country in terms of whether women should be serving on the front line as well alongside men. Um, it's been argued that being constantly the protected uh, and men being the protectors actually leaves women as second-class citizens. Um, what do people think about this? Is this, um, is this kind of a, a better response? Is this the strategy that you feel like feminism should be pursuing? Yeah? I think the use of the pictures is simplistic because if you look at Lindsay England, for example, she came from a really abusive and violent background. She was abused as a woman and then she's gone into the army. So I think just saying, rejecting femininity and showing these pictures out of context is really problematic for me. Uh, actually, that's one of, the, um, one of the issues that we're going to come on to in the next session is thinking about the construction of gender norms and how they actually put Lindy England yeah. in that situation. So um, this isn't kind of presented as 
an e example of simply saying kind of that women are violent or can be violent, but I think, I mean, I would agree with you, there's very much a context to that, and I think gender has a lot to do with that context as well. Does, it, does anybody else? Yeah. I think a lot of what I heard when I was younger about women not being allowed in the armed forces was always about how it might be distracting for men and how men might not be able to ignore their instincts to kind of protect women at all costs. And I think as long as reasons come from that place especially, then I think we need to reject that because it just reinforces this whole idea that there are these gender roles that are so ingrained that we can't possibly break out of them, which I find to be really unhelpful. Yeah, okay, another comment down here. I think it can be a bit of an issue when you come from the position of we can be what you can do because of often that doesn't solve it if like you're coming from the place of we need to prove ourselves and then that's almost being like why, why do we need to prove ourselves like that saying that this is right and that is wrong and that what we've been doing has been wrong and what you've been doing is right so we're going to do what you're going to do like i think just more problems <laughs> Uh, I'll take one over here and then come back, yeah. Okay, yeah, I'll bring it down. So there's also a difference between the types of crimes that men and women are subject to, so obviously rape is the predominant one, and obviously that's used as a, um, you know, as a war mechanism in many, many countries, and I guess there's things like women being in the army, but they're not subject to that, and all women can be raped. Um, it's not obviously the same. one notion of strength and what is what it is to be powerful what it is to be able to combat it's quite a violent notion and I don't think that the feminist project should be engaged with this one violent notion which actually isn't born in feminism I don't think that's a notion that originates in, within feminist discourse for me anyway great thank you uh, back Um, I think that in terms of the areas that women can't work in, there's just certain areas where men don't meet a certain fitness standard, they're not allowed to do it. And I suppose it's just a fact that women can't carry as much as men, but there's still plenty of roles in the army where women are better and that can be promoted. So maybe you know, she's focus on the areas that they're strongest in. Um, it's maybe not that the women aren't um, mentally difficult can be just that they can't really carry as much it might actually put other people in danger or it might put other people in danger and then I don't know if people would want that responsibility I just feel like by rejecting femininity it's kind of quite derogatory to women in themselves because a lot of women are feminine there's nothing wrong with that um, and rejecting it just kind of propagates a lot of gender stereotypes anyway. 
Um, yeah. Um, in response to the previous question, I think more it's equal opportunity, not so much as women proving themselves or women can do this or they can't do this. It's more women should be given the opportunity to attend that training, be able to prove that they can carry X you know, kilos worth of baggage or whatever. And if they can, if they need those same restraints, that same checklist of things that are as required for them to be in the army, then they should be able to be in the army. If they can do it, then there should be nothing that should, you know that stops them, especially not gender, which is a construction. Yeah. Okay, lots of hands starting to go up now. Do you want to take those couple and then we'll, we'll come back? Show the picture of Green and Common. Surely the Green and Common women were showing bravery, courage, fortitude, fearlessness, all the things that are traditionally said to be male. I'd much rather see women leading the peace campaign and the fight, the fight for peace, than fight using arms. Yeah, essentially to reiterate that, should the emphasis really be on can you join the army, should either the gender really be conducting themselves in that behaviour really? Okay, lots of quite quite different views. Um, I think, I mean, this question is really, really difficult for people who are committed to both gender equality and to peace. Um, it kind of pulls you in two directions, in a sense. Um, so, I mean, here are some of the problems that, um, that feminists working on these issues have identified um, with this problem. Um, so I guess one is the fact that women joining militaries hasn't necessarily got people gender equality uh, within societies. Um, and this picture, as you can see, is from Israel, where there's been a certain kind of fetishization um, of, of women in the army, but also it's, it's almost been used to kind of um, demonstrate the country as kind of a beacon of democracy and equality um, within, within the Middle East, which from the reactions in the audience, I'm guessing not everybody would agree with. Um, the picture on the top right, uh, this is basically intended to illustrate the point that um, although getting more women into the military may address men's monopoly on the use of violence, it doesn't actually address the use of violence itself. Yeah. And so you can change the person who's enacting violence, but there's still kind of an, an underlying problem there, at least for me and for many of us as, as peace activists that needs to be addressed. Um, and then finally, the bottom picture, yeah, is just is just kind of saying that for a lot of people, um, addressing militarism is is part of their feminism, and um, many people feel like this isn't kind of the priority issue as a sort of as a feminist um, peace activist. We need to be addressing militarization and not simply changing who are the ones who are being militarized. Uh, so finally. Um, I guess this is a this is a third approach um, to how we address these uh, this association between gender and war and peace and so on. So most feminist peace activists these days want to reject all conventions that force men and women into narrow social roles, highlighting that obviously both men and women can play roles that either promote war or that promote peace. So the problem isn't really with men or women per se. Uh, the problem is that ideas about masculinity and femininity have been used to perpetuate war and militarism throughout history. And so it's actually these ideas about gender, about what does it mean to be masculine or what does it mean to be feminine, which need to be broken down. Uh, and actually, after the, after the break at the end of this session, um, David from The Great Initiative will be doing an exercise with you, which is starting to look at how do, we, how do we start breaking down some of these gender norms, like what are the practical approaches 
to doing that. And we'll, we'll also talk a bit about how people are trying to do that in countries experiencing conflict and high levels of militarization as well. Um, but before we move on to Julia's session, we have about 10, 15 minutes um, by my clock. So um, I guess it would be great to hear a few more of people's comments questions, um, anything that you'd like to add on this topic. It's obviously something that kind of provokes a lot of thought, so maybe if we can, can kind of continue discussing that, getting people's responses for a few more minutes. You can't all go quiet now. Not <laughs> 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 not yeah, okay. Uh, we'll take that one first. Um, something's gone. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Um, now, I think the whole point is that we should be recognising everybody's strengths we have known violent women, and I have met, you know, the most tender and peace-loving men in my life. So what we really need to do is to stop using those words and just recognizing the strength of everybody and appreciating those strengths. On the other hand, at the moment, with the research shows that peace, uh, women who are in peace negotiations seem to be far more successful. And that was why I stood up at the beginning. Thank you. Um, something, something that's alive for me right now is um, what I'm hearing is the, the words masculinity and femininity being interchangeable with the word gender. And I'm just wondering if maybe they're different things. I, I would really like to um, understand more clearly what the relationship between masculinity and femininity and gender is um, and whether they're actually the same thing or not. Do you have a view on that? I'm really confused right now. I mean, <laughs> um, I mean I, I, I've been through a process of rejecting my masculinity. Um, and then now I'm kind of like, I feel like there's a historical, historical context in which I have a responsibility as a man to kind of um, accept my masculinity and, and what effect that has on the world and what I can do with that. But right now I'm, I'm still kind of struggling to really grasp my identity around being a man and masculinity and also femininity too. Yeah. Thank you. That's really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you showed a picture at the beginning of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, Thank and you. I was astonished that uh, you didn't reference that um, the fact that the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom came about it, because of an effort to end the First World War. And the specifics of that were that women didn't have access to universal suffrage and their human rights and their ability to make political change was an absolutely core and fundamental issue to that. And surely that's, that, that is the point that we we really need to address, um, and we still we still don't have equality. We still don't have uh, political opportunity. We still don't even regard women's human rights as a human right. Women's right to peace is not part of the human human rights that we should that are enshrined in UN legislation. So. <laughs> These are the things that I think we really need to address, and I'm, I'm, I'm always interested to have a brief discussion about the language in terms of what are the gendered constructs. 
But ultimately, it's down to the fact that women don't have access to their human rights, they don't have access to adequate, uh, adequate protection or participation um, in areas of conflict. UN Security Council Resolution 1325 is a long way off. We've just had 15 years and we're, we're a long way off. That's what I was hoping we were going to be talking about in this workshop. Um, so just for those who aren't familiar with it, uh, UN Security Council Resolution 1325 was a resolution that was adopted by the UN Security Council in the year 2000, uh, which was calling for women's equal, full and equal participation in peace negotiations in all decision making related to peace and security. And that's something that we're still very much campaigning uh, around today. We just had the 15th anniversary this year, uh, lots of big kind of meetings and so on at the UN and what we're essentially seeing is clearly that that has not been implemented, that in fact very little progress has been made in terms of implementing it. So, I mean, yes, absolutely, that's very much part of the dis discussion here. The UK government doesn't even recognise it as an obligation to include 1325 in its national action plan in the north of Ireland, where the UK government says that's not a conflict and it didn't involve women. Absolutely, and in fact the, the UK's um, activities around 1325 are very much looking externally at how other people are including women in their decision making around peace and security, and not what's going on in the UK. Uh, it's, it's very much true. Um, anybody else? It's all gone quiet now. <laughs> yeah, damn it. Um. I recently did a seminar in uh, feminism, and my seminar leader um, said to somebody, said, oh, you know, the fight for equality is, you know, men and women having equal rights, and she said, oh, like the old mantra, why have equality when you can have liberty? And that's something that really res resonated with me. We're still stuck in a system where we're trying to fit in. Why don't we just try? It's probably never going to happen. So wouldn't it be really nice to have a completely different system that started again? <laughs> Okay, uh, thank you. We've probably got time for a couple more. Yeah, a couple more five minutes. Comments? Yeah, over here. I've lived most of my life without the idea of trying to ignore it really at all. And it's very that. Yeah, there are two people who are the
it's great because yeah, it's been for me. But I've never <laughs> had a woman say, "Well, I'm sorry, but I want to pay my treat," or "I don't think it's fair for this man to pay twenty pounds extra to get into this club." And I think, well, yeah, we want equality, but is it the case that some people want equality when it's just that? Um, I think there are big differences in talking about whether you're a feminist or you're an egalitarian, and there's definitely a lot of conversation there. And I think one of the key things about feminism is that you acknowledge the fact that patriarchy exists, and patriarchy is a root cause of what makes an unequal society and brings about those inequalities, which I think traditionally egalitarianism as a philosophy ignores. Um, in terms of what feminism actually does and what we, the issues that you look at in feminism, these are issues that affect women's lives. It's not the fact that you're paying, you know, you're getting a free drink from a guy in a club or you're not playing club entry. That's great. The fact is, is feminism looks at things that like one in three women at college age are being raped. You know, you're looking at real life health issues. You're looking at, you know, lives that are in danger. You're looking at societies which are stru structured systematically, which are oppressing women, which are hurting women, and it's great that maybe the biggest issues that we can talk about are being allowed into a club and that's not real equality. But the fact is that these, you know, there are, there are lives, which is as a priority, a little bit more important than talking about things like that. Um, I would also say, just because I have the mic and I can, uh, <laughs> but I think you need to look at the reasons why women aren't paying to get into that exactly. club. Yeah, and that's because men are paying on the expectation that there will be women in there who they can go and hit on. And that we're essentially, we're going in free because for the, you know, the exchanges that we have to accept that we're prey, essentially. Exactly. Personally, I'd rather pay for it. I was literally just going to say that. And actually, you know, a lot of the feminist struggle completely aligns itself with the queer struggle as well. And then we talk about men and women going into the club. Not only are men, we're both victims of this sexual predator thing that goes on. So I think we should just be mindful of that when we're talking about the contemporary struggle of minority or marginalised classes of people. Okay, I'm going to take one more comment and then we need to move on to Julie's presentation. I'm just thinking about, in this discussion, I'm thinking about the work of Kelly D. asking, looking at um, rape as a weapon of war. And obviously, earlier, you discussed men were raped and sexually violated throughout warfare. But at the same time, it was the deliberate targeting of women. It was, a de it was looking at masculinity and femininity and looking at those constructs to break society. So it was taking what were the social norms within a society and using them to destroy that society on a genocidal basis. So I think very much on a case-by-case -case basis, when we start to look at gendered crimes in war, it's actually looking at what's going to destroy that particular social group in a way. Thank you. Um, I think we need to move on because I don't want to be the person that overruns and doesn't let the next person speak, but that's actually a really nice comment, I think, on which to hand over because it links very much with what Julia's going to be talking about. So, if I speak without the microphone, can everyone hear me okay? No? no. <laughs> I hate the microphone. Okay, now can everyone hear me? Sorry, move out your way. Uh, okay, so firstly, I would like to uh, thank so Anna and Julie uh, for inviting me along today. Oh, 
for inviting me along today, and obviously all, all of you for turning up in what I sometimes refer to as the graveyard shift, which is the one directly after lunch when kind of everyone just really wants to uh, go to sleep. Uh, so I would be uh, kind of uh, titled my presentation "Masculinities in the British Armed Forces," and I'm going to be talking about, I guess, some of the um, ideas, some of the conclusions I reached uh, uh, researching masculinities within the British military during my PhD, which I completed um, a couple of years ago. I guess I want to maybe start by saying um, there's going to be something of a simplifying of the actual conclusions because I just don't have the time to, well, uh, to do them justice. So I hope it doesn't kind of uh, appear as I'm doing some kind of causal concluding here, but rather I'm trying to point to what I understand as some kind of dominant narratives that I found circulating having, a re having completed the research project. So I wanted to start by talking a little bit about what compelled me to want to start researching masculinity within the British military. And this is largely came about because during my undergraduate studies, during my MA, I became increasingly aware of incredibly contradictory stories surrounding the military and surrounding those predominantly men who make up its ranks. And while I'm not going to talk directly to the contradictions that inspired my research because I've updated them for you, I do want to talk in kind of broad terms about the type of contradictions I saw taking place. So in May 2014, the International Criminal Court announced it had enough burden of proof to begin to investigate claims of systematic detainee abuse by British forces in Iraq between 2003 and 2008. Now this burden of proof was over 400 um, individual cases, which included allegations of sexual assault against detainees, beatings of detainees, and mock executions. And to give you an idea of some of the allegations that have been leveled against the British, uh, British troops, I want to read uh, from two testimonies that have appeared in, this, um, uh, in the uh, International Criminal Court proceedings. So one detainee who suffered more than 60 punches to his head stated, there were many soldiers pushing and throwing me. As each soldier caught me, they would punch me. He goes on to describe how his son was also abused. A soldier brought in my eight-year-old son into a room. The officers started slapping my son around his face and shouting at him. I was on the floor in a terrible condition and couldn't move. A second testimony uh, states, the soldier put his boot on my chest and pulled my trousers down. I was shouting and I was curled up against the wall. Then the soldier pulled me by the legs away from the wall. He turned me over on my stomach. He started rubbing his penis on my back while the other soldiers watched. Then I felt him ejaculate on my back. I was trying to move away, but another soldier came and pressed his foot on my legs. So these are the kind uh, of kind of cases that uh, during my undergraduate studies, I kind of was, there was a, I kind of referred to it as a drip drip of these stories appearing in the media, centered around British troops and their actions in Iraq and Afghanistan. It wasn't, however, just these populations abroad who were the victims of uh, such abuse. There was also a, uh, a drip drip of stories much closer to home and within <coughs> the ranks themselves. So again, a kind of updated version of this is in the summer of this year, the MOD uh, released a report where it stated almost half of service personnel believe that sexual harassment it was a, is a problem in the army, with nearly four out of 10 female soldiers subjected to comments of a sexual nature. Uh, so, uh, in this MOD report, it goes on to report that there have been over 400 cases of serious sexual assault 
and rape within the British Armed Forces <coughs> in the last five years. And the report states that they think this number is actually much smaller than, than its actual occurrence. So this is because this only counts for those uh, rapes that have been investigated by the military police as opposed to civilian police officers. And for anyone who takes anything, anything of a passing interest in sexual assault, um, sexual harassment, you will know the, uh, the structural difficulties that survivors of these assaults face in reporting these crimes. Um, in a, an institution that is as hierarchical and as inward-facing as the military, I think we can agree that the, these structures are going to be exponentially increased. This report only deals with um, a male sexual assault on women. There is, of course, a, a, a problem with male-on-male -male sexual assault, and this is, again, something that is even less spoken about, or in, it is indicated it is even less spoken about. And finally, in 2009, a study by the Probation Union, NAPO, revealed a number, the number of former servicemen in prison or, in, or on probation was actually greater than the numbers that were currently deployed in Afghanistan. And 2009 was shortly after the 3,500 extra troops were, were taken over, so it was a huge number. Reading this report more carefully, you see that the vast majority of ex-servicemen in prison on probation are there for violent crimes, and in particular, domestic abuse. So there is this kind of confrontation of all these really quite, or at least to my ears, very distressing violences that we see these servicemen uh, partaking in. But it was actually the contradictions that interested me. So at the same time that these stories were coming out, we saw with troops deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan an increasing amount of attention given to uh, uh, the soldiers, and particularly to the soldiers who died. And when they died, we began to hear stories about their personal <coughs> lives, about their familial lives. So even if you were someone like me, who doesn't have a personal connection in as much as I have no close friends or close family who are within the military, you began to get a sense of what these people were like. They weren't just cogs in the military machine, but you really began to understand them as people. And so I want to read two um, excerpts from some uh, obituaries that appear on the Ministry of Defense website. Uh, these both relate to soldiers who were killed in Iraq. So Private Craig Barber was only 20 years old at the time of his death in 2007. And his platoon commander said, Private Craig was a, was a key member of 9-2, who had many friends. Always a gossip and a joker, he tried hard to wind up those around him to keep his mate's morale high. Craig had an eye for card games and chess, and loved to confuse people with his tricks and riddles. He was also a devoted family man, who decorated his bed space with pictures of his wife and young boy, and talked about them constantly. Jeremy Brooks, who was 28 at the time of his death in Iraq, also in 2007, was described by his commanding officer as an inspirational and much-loved figure in the rifles. An outstanding rifleman, a charismatic and natural leader, a sportsman of exceptional talent and determination, and a warm, wickedly funny and generous man. He was in all respects larger than life and an example to us all. He was incapable of doing anything by half measures and lived his life to the full, constantly seeking new challenges to overcome. I never saw him admit defeat in anything, and his determination, vigor, and sheer zest for life was a personal inspiration. So to me, hearing these two, these two sides to soldiering, these two sides to military, I became incredibly confused. How could these seemingly kind, compassionate, caring, family-orientated, benign individuals also 
emerged from the same institution, be the, the same type of person who engaged in this sexual abuse, in this sexual harassment, in torture claims, in, in the beating up of their intimate partners, and so on and so forth. And this is what really compelled me to want to start asking questions. So I appreciate there would be uh, a number of people who would say something along the lines of, well, there's around 200,000 people in the British Armed Forces. It's inevitable that there's going to be some good apples and there's going to be some bad apples. Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, as someone who's spent like the past six years of their life kind of researching this, I would disagree with that. And I think as uh, Hannah's uh, presentation did a really good job of doing, We've seen the ways in which certain ideas about masculinity and femininity are needed in order for wars to be waged, uh, for militaries to operate. And so I wanted to ask questions about how these particular constructions of gender might go some way to helping me understand how these two very different types of soldiers were emerging from the military. And I specifically wanted to focus on masculinity, not because I think there's something biological or innate and that men are somehow genetically, biologically, evolutionarily predisposed to violence, but because of the cultural ties between masculinity and the military, between masculinity and war are so intimate, so entrenched, that it really does worth, uh, worth uh, asking some questions about it. So the first thing I wanted to do was ask some questions about the ways in which a particular type of masculinity was constructed or produced within the institution of the military. And a, a phenomenal feminist called Cynthia Enno has this um, amazing quote where she says, if masculinity in the raw were sufficient, there would be little need for the sweat, blisters, and humiliations of basic training. So basic training, in some ways, you can kind of understand has been the most overt indication that actually some kind of active constant construction of masculinity is needed, that we can't simply rely on some kind of killer instinct or innate violence in order to make individuals go to war, but something also needs to be constructed, to be shaped, to be moulded. So I want to talk in some quite broad terms about basic training, um, and hopefully you'll see the ways in which the things I'm talking about kind of then go on to inform the discussion of violence a little later. So basic training, um, so I focus on the British military, but basic training is actually remarkably similar almost wherever you go, particularly within Western militaries, but uh, just you know, bear in mind that my research focuses specifically on the British military. So basic training continues to privilege what are conceived as traditionally masculine traits, those uh, such as violence, aggression, physical and mental endurance, so on and so forth. And it continues to uh, denigrate and try to expel those traits that are seen as uh, feminine. So these things like emotionality, weakness, irrationality, compassion, care, so on and so forth. And you see the ways in which a particular type of masculinity is uh, engendered via the practices of basic training through some of the insults that are leveled at uh, recruits who fail to live up to the standards set within basic training. And these uh, insults take on a very particular gendered, race and sexualized uh, kind of tone. So they include insults such as whore, faggot, sissy, cunt, ladies, pussy, nigger, and sometimes simply the old favorite, you woman. So you can see here a really particular form of masculinity has been valorized a really particular form of manhood, and that's one of heterosexuality, one of hypermasculinity, and one of um, 
uh, whiteness as well, crucial to the British military. So alongside these very formal military um, uh, processes such as the, the physical uh, obstacle courses, physical training, field crafts, uh, there's also an informal military culture that runs alongside it. And this informal military culture is just as gendered, just as racialized, and just as sexualized as the formal one. Um, and I want to speak quite specifically to the informal culture of aggressive heterosexuality that exists within the British military. So in 2000, the British military uh, allowed openly uh, homosexual soldiers to serve in the ranks. Up until that point, like America, uh, up until 2011, it was kind of a don't ask, don't tell policy. However, the simply opening up of uh, the ranks to openly homosexual soldiers does not, of course, uh, change the kind of institutional structure. And when I say the informal structure is aggressively heterosexual, I'm talking here to what you could call as the macho ethos of the barrack room. So for, during my field work that took place on a British uh, base, there were numerous uh, uh, pictures of women wearing very little clothes. The kind of typical conversation in, in social areas was about heterosexual conquests. I was engaged with in a flirtatious manner continually. It was very much uh, that this is where heterosexuality resides. And while there may be openly gay soldiers serving, they are certainly not allowed to boast about their latest sexual encounter in the same way. They're not allowed to display their sexual desires in the same way. However, military life, of course, is real life. And just like real life, it's much messier and much more contradictory than these kind of things I'm talking about. Because, of course, soldiers aren't these, the, the type of person I've just spoken about. They, are, they experience moments of weakness. They show compassion to one another. They cry. They're scared. They have moments where they feel like a coward. They have all these emotions that basic training does a lot of work trying to deny that uh, soldiers have these emotions. And to me, it's, this, it's both the ways in which soldiers are uh, produced through these particular practices and the fact that there's so many contradictions and therefore the masculinity that's been constructed is incredibly fragile, incredibly weak. It's incredibly easy to transgress the very particular ways in which they've been told to act that I think can tell us something about the types of violences I was speaking about earlier. Okay, so the first uh, type of violence I want to talk a little bit in more detail about is what I refer to as violence against external populations. And by external populations, quite simply, I mean the populations of places like Iraq and Afghanistan where British soldiers are deployed abroad to engage in military operations. So the first, perhaps before talking specifically to that, it's worth thinking about the history of the British military and in particular its uh, history as a colonial and imperial power. So throughout the 19th and 20th century, the British Army has been involved in imperial uh, policing and colonial war fighting from the Malaya campaign in the 1950s right up to their, their occupation of Northern Ireland from the 1960s to really the present day. And this very, this colonial, this colonial and imperial history has meant that those within the military, those within the government, and I would argue also amongst the wider public, there is an assumption that the British military is in some way uniquely suited to peace building and to peacekeeping. 
And I think the most obvious way that this kind of materializes in everyday life is the distinction that is frequently made between the American and British militaries. So while the American uh, military is frequently depicted as this high finance, high firepower, high violence military who kind of goes into places all guns blazing, the British military in comparison is seen as somehow a softer, more gentle military that is particularly attuned to winning the so-called hearts and minds of the local population. And it's, it's often said that we're so good at this hearts and minds work because of our colonial history, which kind of helpfully kind of ignores the violence, exploitation, <laughs> and repression that fundamentally undermines imperialism um, and, and colonialism. But this is a very um, frequent kind of popular narrative, and I think it would be really easy to find this in any kind of newspaper that talks about the counterinsurgency campaign in Afghanistan and a comparison between the UK and the US. <coughs> However, for, for a lot of soldiers who deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, the, the type of environment that met them was an environment that didn't meet up to any of those military myths they had been told about. And by military myths, I mean those military myths of these kind of almost romanticized, high excitement battles, but also the military myths of being the good peacekeeper, of being the kind of white savior who can help these people. So the nature of counterinsurgency meant that for long periods of time, soldiers might be engaged in quite menial tasks, such as guarding humanitarian supplies. There weren't a, in, there weren't a huge, huge number of firefights. Indeed, when violence was experienced by soldiers, it was increasingly via the, the use of improvised explosive devices, which is why we've seen so many young, predominantly young men returning home disfigured and disabled from their time in Iraq and Afghanistan. And also, given that uh, both Iraq and Afghanistan went on for around a decade, while the local population may have been initially quite welcoming, quite pleased to see coalition forces, after a decade of occupation, after ongoing insurgence and coalition violence, and after all the societal improvements that were promised to them that failed quite simply to materialize, the local population perhaps were somewhat less happy to see this continued occupation of, of, this, of their land. So in this context of these kind of this failure to meet these, uh, these military myths, particular racialized and colonial understandings of the environments of Iraq and Afghanistan began to emerge. And they emerged both in official documentation from the Ministry of Defense and also in more personal soldier testimonies from soldiers I interviewed, but also um, in soldier autobiographies of their, their time in Iraq and Afghanistan and also um, in kind of uh, documentaries, museum exhibitions, and so forth. So just to uh, say a little bit about the official documentation, um, the Atkin Report was published in the aftermath of a spate of uh, serious torture allegations and abuses that British soldiers had carried out in Iraq, um, in particular the murder of Baha Musa, who was a 24-year-old um, Iraqi receptionist who was beaten to death by British soldiers. And in the Atkin report, there are frequent references to, and I quote, a frustrated and a suspicious local population, as well as a state of anarchy that existed throughout Iraq. In the soldier testimonies, uh, you frequently hear soldiers refer to an endemic state of violence that marked these societies of Iraq and Afghanistan. And what in my research I found was that both of these um, 
both the official documents and these personal testimonies relied on two things. One, they relied on fairly familiar colonial and racialized understandings. And this is kind of most easily understood as the kind of civilized white European in comparison to the barbaric non-white Arab um, man. And it also, these, these two kind of uh, understandings of Iraq and Afghanistan completely negate Britain's culpability in, in it. So the fact that the local population are frustrated, the fact that there's a lack, there is a lawlessness, the fact that there is endemic violence, is this because it's a particularly Arab or non-Western thing? Or is it that this is a country that has been at war for a decade? A country that is in this situation and intimately tied to our decision as, as, as a, our foreign policy decisions as a nation. So there seems this, this disconnect uh, and not recognizing their own culpability in, in fostering this particular type of uh, environment. So in this context of these kind of colonial and racialized understandings, the violence that is perpetrated against uh, the local population is seen in some way as justified, as legitimate, because it's the only, the, the, so something you often hear is, it's the only language they understand. That in a place of lawlessness and barbarism, you can't work through the rule of law, you can't work through negotiation, because that's not how it operates. So this is one way in which I saw violence manifesting. And violence also served an important, um, an important role here. The masculinity that they had been promised that was tied so tightly to a particular idea of war fighting, a particular idea of peace building, wasn't been met. And violence was one way in which their masculinity could be shored up. <coughs> so the second uh, violence, the second violence I want to talk about is violence that takes place uh, within the ranks. So. Um, as I've already spoken about previously, uh, the, the very particular masculine construction uh, of a soldier that the kind of practices and processes of basic training produces is, was previously relied upon because the, the military was an exclusively male space. Um, and it was also an exclusively or assumed to be an exclusively heterosexual space. Um, however, in the last two decades, the British military has undergone significant organizational change. So now the vast majority of roles are now open to women, although as we've spoken about, they will still remain barred from uh, roles that engage in close combat. And since 2000, openly gay soldiers um, have been allowed to serve. So this means the kind of very common practice that people often talk about, kind of homoerotic play, hypersexualized play that takes place between male recruits. Previously, this was a safe thing to do because it was a strictly heterosexual sphere. However, now that we see the, the integration of women, the integration of, of homosexual men, the, these things need to be more carefully policed. So femininity needs to be more carefully policed now that women are allowed in. Homosexuality needs to be more carefully policed because you might be engaging in homoerotic or hypersexualized play, not with an aggressively heterosexual man, but with someone who is homosexual. And this raises all kinds of potential difficulties for this kind of very particular masculinity that is uh, attempted to be produced. And there's two uh, very particular ways in which the policing of femininity and homosexuality uh, takes place. So firstly, it's through the denigration of women and femininity, which I've already spoken about in terms of the kind of gendered insults that are leveled. 
but also about how women's bodies are first and foremost sexualized within the military. So I've spoken about the, the prevalence of uh, like scantily clad women on walls, of a, a sexualized language used when discussing women. It's also, this also links to the sexual harassment that four out of 10 uh, uh, service women have uh, reported. And you also see the sexualization of women's bodies in the combat ban. So we've spoken about this already, and the combat ban uh, is leveled to women not because of any presumed physiological incapability a woman might have of pulling her comrade out of theatre, but because she's seen as potentially disruptive, potentially sexually disruptive, because the military doesn't want to risk putting a woman with the men on the front line because they might get distracted by her sexuality. Uh, so this is a really interesting way that even in official documentation, women's bodies in the military are still seen as first and foremost sexual bodies that have to, that have to go below combat readiness, combat effectiveness. The, second, the way in which homosexuality is very carefully policed is via homophobia. So an amazing queer theorist called Eve Sedgwick has written about the way in which homophobia plays a very important role in highly homosocial environments. So a homosocial environment is an, an exclusively male uh, environment where there will be a lot of uh, homoeroticism, homosocial play. So this could be the military, but it could also be the rugby club, an all-male sports team. And what homophobia does, it allows for men to engage in these highly homosocial, homoerotic activities, but know that their heterosexuality remains intact. It allows the border between homosociality and homosexuality to remain in place. So while you have this highly kind of homoeroticized play within the military, it has constantly been kept in check by homophobic abuse that is used in tandem alongside uh, this, this play. So here we see a number of violences taking place. We obviously see the, the, the violence of verbal abuse, but we also see physical violence and sexual harassment, um, physical violence, so on and so forth, and obviously the intimate connections uh, that are made between them. And of course, all of this violence is linked to this idea that this particular heterosexual masculinity that is, has been produced is in some way under threat by the, uh, the introduction of these new bodies into the military. Finally, I want to talk about I want to talk uh, about violence that is directed towards the soldiers' bodies and the soldiers' uh, mental capabilities uh, themselves. So, in recent years, I think it's been really interesting to see the ways in which the term hero is no longer so solidly attached to the traditional soldiering masculine body. And actually, the term hero has kind of been disconnected from this, and we're, we're seeing it applied to bodies that had previously not so easily held that label. I've already spoken about the fact that improvised explosive devices and, uh, and medical uh, advancements on the battlefield have meant that soldiers are now coming home uh, with incredibly disfiguring or disabling injuries. And while these were exactly the types of soldiers who would have been excluded from the term hero uh, historically, we're now seeing the way in which the militarized masculine identity can very comfortably fit with them. Uh, there was the Invictus Games held just recently for injured, um, injured former servicemen and women. 
and charities such as Help for Heroes, who do an awful lot of work in documenting the rehabilitated soldier. What I find interesting is that while the term hero, while masculinity resides really comfortably on this disabled body, it perhaps doesn't fit so well in our kind of popular narratives on the, the mentally harmed soldier, the soldier who has post-traumatic stress disorder, the soldier who comes home and engages in domestic abuse fueled by drug or alcohol problems. And here we see uh, a public, less, uh, a less vocal public talking about these men as heroes. So while we're quite happy with seeing masculinity remaining intact on this disabled body, still this idea of an emotionality, this classic kind of feminine weakness of the mind, it still eludes our ability to see them still as masculine. And so here I, see, here I think we can see the ways in which this fragile masculinity can have such horrible negative effects for the soldiers themselves. So I just want to end, uh, I guess, by saying what does all this mean? Um, I feel like a lot of the time I'm still trying to uh, figure it out myself, and I'm constantly finding new stuff that contradicts stuff I thought before, and it's making even my own thoughts on the, the matter even messier. But hope this is, will hopefully be is where I currently am. So it's obviously about the politics of militarism. It's about the privileging of certain ideas, values, traits, feelings, and the centrality of violence to all of those things. It's about the politics of gender. It's about prescribing what certain bodies can and cannot do on the assumption of what we think they look like, and then punishing them when they transgress these expectations. It's about the two ways in which these two politics are intimately linked. And I would argue it's about the need to stay vigilant to how and where these politics operate. So obviously I've just spent the last 30 minutes or so talking about the military. However, the military doesn't operate in a vacuum. These ideas of gender don't exist exclusively in the military. Ideas of gender pass in and out of the military. It's incredibly fluid. And we're seeing, I think we're going through a period where we're seeing an increasing militarization of everyday life. Two days ago, it was Armistice Day. There is now a huge politics around the, the poppy, about who wears one, what it means if you don't wear one, if you should be allowed on TV without wearing one, what, you know, what kind of bodies it's provocative to wear one, uh, not wear a poppy with. And what's interesting about the poppy politics is that when you give money to wear your poppy, if you choose to wear a poppy, you're giving money to the Royal British Legion. And it's amazing that at the same time we continue, continue, continually privilege these particular militaristic ideas, these particular masculine ideas, we actually fail to protect those those individuals who choose to take them on, who choose to go to war, and may suffer the consequences. Because we need charities like the Royal British Legion, like Help for Heroes, because the British state doesn't seem very much interested in supporting them when they get home, or, for, or not half as uh, interested in supporting them when they're at home, as opposed to supporting them to go out to fight these wars. So this isn't just about the politics of the British military, but the politics of uh, militarism and gender more generally that I think is ever more kind of increasing onto our so-called civilian lives. Uh, so questions, comments, thoughts, disagreements, I'm happy to hear um, any, or if anything wasn't clear, I could try to kind of take out all academic language. Um, 
So yeah, do we have time? Yeah, we have 20 minutes. <laughs> So it's, I, I can't, I'm not going to be able to quote from it uh, directly. So it's, it was in, res sorry. <laughs> Better? It should come on in a second. It might be on now, I think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Is that okay? Yeah. Uh, so uh, did you hear the question? Yes, yeah. Uh, so I, I can't quote directly from the, the literature, but... Uh, it was in response, so the vast majority of militaries allow women to serve on the front line. The UK really is out, out by itself here. And it was in response to EU yeah, equality legislation that the, the UK had to make the, the reason as to why women weren't allowed on. So because they couldn't argue it on physiological grounds, because that in theory could allow them to open it up. So instead they argued it along the lines of that they didn't know the effect a woman would have on close combat. So while it's not specifically saying, this is the exact same argument that was used against homosexuals. It was the exact same argument that was used against um, uh, non-white members of the armed forces all those years ago. So while we've now deemed that homosexuals aren't going to distract, that non-white members aren't going to distract, the woman's body remains the kind of ultimate taboo on the front line. Hi, thank you for your presentation. It was, it was really amazing. Um, one of the questions I had was, did you come across in your research how when women came back from the front line, what were their incidences of alcoholism and uh, drug abuse and perhaps, you know, uh, mental, any mental health issues? Did you come across that in your study? You know what, I only spoke uh, with two women in total in my interviews. Um, and... I mean, it was interesting because, you know, you go through the MOD, so it was a very, I imagine I was talking to two very particular <laughs> women in my interviews. I, I, I didn't come across it in my own kind of, my own interviews of uh, women servicemen, uh, service uh, personnel. Um, I don't know what the indication is. I mean, I think the general consensus is that there's something of a ticking time bomb in terms of anxiety-related diseases because... Um, I mean, I'm speaking to a crowd who is probably going to know far more about this kind of stuff than myself, but that post-traumatic stress disorder often manifests in decades to come rather than the, in the immediate after effects. So I can't answer with any uh, certainty, I'm afraid. Sorry. Um, recently on TV, I think one show, BBC One, one show, Channel 4, there's been a, a resurgence of this kind of SAS going to the limits, pushing your body to the absolute limits. And the BBC One had once, well, had, there were men and women, they were amateur athletes, and they tried to put themselves through various um, systems of military like training. And uh, a woman won. I mean, um, yeah, she won. And I think the comment was she's just as much a man 
אז אני So I think it's partly uh, to do with the militarization of civilian life. So you have things like uh, boot camps, British military fitness, um, uh, military ethos in schools, um, military academies, the first military academy for secondary school students have, has just opened. Uh, so I think there is this, it's, it's definitely tied to the militarization. And I think it's also to do with this, this idea that there's a kind of physical good, not just an emotional good, but a physical good in the things that the British military stands for. Um, and I think with the, the women winning, there's also obviously since America has opened up combat roles to the two women. I mean, I think we're just, it's a matter of years now until combat roles are open to the UK because we really are just, we're looking like dinosaurs. <laughs> This is probably a very academic question, um, sorry, but when you were conducting your research, so you said that you had received, you received quite a lot of like flirtatious comments and, and things like that, but I was wondering that I've, it seems that a lot of people who conduct this kind of research where it combines some kind of masculine field with feminism or some women should be involved or any research like that um, seems to get a lot of backlash, particularly from people like strong male figures within that community and did you experience anything like that? No, uh, nothing. I mean, I, the, the, every single service person I met was so unbelievably um, generous and kind and welcoming to me. Um, in fact, I, my kind of day-to-day -day existence on the base was at, I kind of encountered less visible sexism than I see in my current institution. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but academia is really sexist. <laughs> um, uh, so, um, so no, I didn't have any backlash. I mean, what, what was interesting was when you're, as part of kind of research ethics, you have to uh, allow them to see any research that's presented. So I made that available to them, um, although it was years before I, it was years before I finished my PhD and I also you know doubt very many people want to read kind of a 90,000 word mediation on gender relations in the British military so to my knowledge none of the people I actually interview um, actually have read my work uh, they certainly never contacted me and asked to see it so I, I suspect they might be unhappy with some of the conclusions I draw because I am uh, I look for ways of resisting militarism and resisting the British military while trying to not um, to not play the blame game with any of the individuals who make the choice to serve. I just find the institution as a whole and militarism as a whole problematic. Mm -hmm. 
So I was, I was just looking at um, infantrymen, so, and they are all men. This is one of the, the branches where women are uh, barred. From kind of reading secondary sources on um, uh, women's training, so basic training is always done in single-sex um, brigades in, in the British military, at least. Um, and I think, I mean, quite amazingly, the term you woman is still used. Uh, in the kind of a training regime with women. So it's, it's almost like just a statement of fact that they're using as a kind of derogatory term when you fail to achieve something. So that's only through secondary resources rather than my own. service personnel at all. Um, the British military is really um, interesting. So while the American military has a, a huge ethnic diversity to it, and what's very interesting about the American military is looking at the way that that kind of intersects with class as well, because they have the opportunity to go to college, uh, the British military is overwhelmingly white. Uh, uh, and the, often when you look at the numbers of uh, non-white members of the British military, they're overwhelmingly taken from the, the ex-colonies, so from places like Fiji, um, from Nepal, and so on and so forth. So there's actually a, a, a tiny number, and none of which the MOD decided uh, to um, to allow me to interview. Um, however, I mean, I I've heard um, interviews with uh, with black soldiers where they talk about their their race being used. They don't say as an insult, but as a kind of descriptive terms, so, you know, the, the idea of nicknames within the military, and they'll be called Black X, Black Y, and th th they will say, but this isn't, this isn't racism, because we call him Skinny X, Skinny Y, and, you, you know, this is a, a, a way more, a way bigger discussion, but I guess for me, and, you know, recognising my own kind of structural pri privilege as a, a, a white person, is that in the same way that you woman is a descriptive term, but at the same time an insult, is because it comes with the, the, the structural history of sexism. So calling someone black X, black Y, isn't the same thing as calling someone skinny X, skinny Y, because it comes with the context of structural racism. So I, I can't speak, obviously, for the soldiers themselves, but that would, that's my reading of it. I was just wondering um, when it comes to the you woman 
understanding, and I know you didn't speak to that, but um, in secondary sources, did you come across much about what it meant to be a gay woman in military and how that was used? Uh, so, I mean, really interestingly, you know, with uh, lesbianism, there's this assumption that the woman is in some way giving up some of her femininity. So, previously, women who joined the military, there was always an assumption that they were gay, you know, because uh, a real woman wants to give birth and have long hair and, <laughs> I don't know, like all these other things that r real women, whoever these real women are, I would love to kind of just meet one as a sign, as like just as a point of kind of s social interest. Um, so, you know, sexuality, I mean, um, and women's involvement with the military has always been there, and I think particular particular sexualized insults have always been leveled at women in the military, particularly the assumption that they are some way in denial of their femininity, rejecting femininity. And one of the most potent ways you can do that is, of course, to reject heterosexuality. Can I get you to say a little bit more about what I see as a contradiction between militarism and the military? I mean, I'm interested in what you say that you that you're uncomfortable about what goes on in the military, but you're you're not so uncomfortable about people joining the military. Surely, surely, if one's against militarism, doesn't it doesn't it necessarily follow that one's against people joining the military? Shouldn't one be actually trying to dissuade people from joining the military? So I, I'm against. If I had in my way, we wouldn't have the military. So, but I don't. I don't want to criticise anyone for making that life choice. I also want to be really, really aware of the structural conditions that compel some people to join the military. So I, I've grown up in you know in such a lucky time at such a lucky place with such pe my parents told me you know I could be anything I wanted blah 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 the military wasn't even on my radar my partner grew up in South Wales um, where from you know kind of day one he was told he was never going to be anything and he said the military came along at 16 and told him he could be someone that they would do this he didn't join but he said that was the first time that someone had told him he could be someone. Someone told him that he could be part of something bigger, but they were gonna pay him a wage, they were gonna feed him, they were gonna give him a trade, they were gonna give him a, uh, a place to, uh, to live. And so those kind of structural conditions suddenly make the, the military so much more appealing to certain people. So I don't want to criticize people for making those choices because they're often not choices in the same way that we sometimes understand choices are, are made. So if, yeah, I would love us not to have a military, I'd love there not to be a military in the world, but I don't want to presume I know why people have joined up. I think it's really complicated. That's not quite the same, sorry, can I, can yeah. I come back? I, that's not quite the same as, as, as trying, to, trying to work for a society in which those conditions don't exist or where that option is. Because, I mean, I've heard very much the same sort of thing said about why people turn to a life of crime, for example, because they had few opportunities and an opportunity came along to, to join a criminal activity and so on. So one can, be, one can understand why people have joined a life of crime without being, without being neutral about crime. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I do. I mean, I work every day against militarism. I, I'm a member of various groups. I go into schools. I push back at it. I'm an activist. And so I do work against. But I, I, at the same time, in my own research, where I think I have a real ethical responsibility to the subjects I'm working with, not to treat them, I'm not going to rain down on them for joining the military. So trying to, I guess, balance those two things. I mean, this is something I really struggle with all the time and worry I'm not doing a good enough job of either and, and all those kind of things. <laughs> a couple of observations. Okay, yeah, sorry. Uh, first, I'd like to thank you very much for this. I came uh, to this gathering this afternoon not expecting very much of this. It's very Sorry, so maybe I didn't make myself clear. So it was in kind of soldier testimonies and um, official MOD documentation where references were made to endemic violence, to um, a barbarous society and so on and so forth. And what I was trying to point out is that one, we see here that there's particular kind of racialized understandings, really familiar colonial tropes at play in these descriptions. And secondly, that there's the complete uh, negation of Britain's culpability in uh, fostering these very things. So I think we're, we're in agreement, and I probably just didn't make myself clear when I was uh, talking. So sorry about that. Yeah. So, so one last question, then me. I would have a question. Um, I, it feels important to um, just to say this. The, the, um, the kind of masculinity paradigm you're um, uh, bringing to us is one that I can totally relate to. Now, I've never been in the army. Um, so it just feels like we're talk talking a lot about the military, but the attitudes towards women that you, that you talked about that are alive in the army and the ideologies around what it is to be a man. 
the ones that I was brought up with as well, and, and that I experience all the time, and even now that I experience them. So for me, it's not a military problem, this, it's a societal issue. And it just feels like it's important to mention that. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, thank you, Julia. And thank you for all the excellent questions. I think it was a really interesting conversation. Um, and yeah, I would love to invite you to join us again after the break, so in 30 minutes, at quarter to four for some more practical engagement with gender and norms and masculinities.